Section 1 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii in November 2010. The Descent of Man, Part 2 by Charles Darwin. Chapter 8 Principles of Sexual Selection, Part 1 secondary sexual characters sexual selection manner of action excess of males polygamy the male alone generally modified through sexual selection eagerness of the male variability of the male choice exerted by the female sexual compared with natural selection inheritance at corresponding periods of life at corresponding seasons of the year and as limited by sex relations between the several forms of inheritance causes why one sex and the young are not modified through sexual selection supplement on the proportional numbers of the two sexes throughout the animal kingdom the proportion of the sexes in relation to natural selection with animals which have their sexes separated the males necessarily differ from the females in their organs of reproduction and these are the primary sexual characters but the sexes often differ in what hunter has called secondary sexual characters which are not directly connected with the act of reproduction for instance the male possesses certain organs of sense or locomotion of which the female is quite destitute or has them more highly developed in order that he may readily find or reach her or again the male has special organs of prehension for holding her securely these latter organs of infinitely diversified kinds graduate into those which are commonly ranked as primary and in some cases can hardly be distinguished from them we see instances of this in the complex appendages at the apex of the abdomen in male insects unless indeed we confine the term primary to the reproductive glands it is scarcely possible to decide which ought to be called primary and which secondary the female often differs from the male in having organs for the nourishment or protection of her young such as the mammary glands of mammals and the abdominal sacs of the marsupials in some few cases also the male possesses similar organs which are wanting in the female such as the receptacles for the ova in certain male fishes and those temporarily developed in certain male frogs the females of most bees are provided with a special apparatus for collecting and carrying pollen and their ovipositor is modified into a sting for the defense of the larvae and the community many similar causes could be given but they do not here concern us there are however other sexual differences quite unconnected with the primary reproductive organs and it is with these that we are more especially concerned such as the greater size strength and pugnacity of the male his weapons of offence or means of defence against rivals his gaudy colouring and various ornaments his power of song and other such characters besides the primary and secondary sexual differences such as the foregoing 
the males and females of some animals differ in structures related to different habits of life and not at all or only indirectly to the reproductive functions thus the females of certain flies culicidae and tabanidae are blood-suckers whilst the males living on flowers have mouths destitute of mandibles the males of certain moths and of some crustaceans for example tanais have imperfect closed mouths and cannot feed the complemental males of certain cirripedes live like epiphytic plants either on the female or on the hermaphrodite form and are destitute of a mouth and of prehensile limbs in these cases it is the male which has been modified and has lost certain important organs which the females possess in other cases it is the female which has lost such parts for instance the female glow-worm is destitute of wings as also are many female moths some of which never leave their cocoons many female parasitic crustaceans have lost their natatory legs in some weevil beetles curculionidae there is a great difference between the male and female in the length of the rostrum or snout but the meaning of this and of many analogous differences is not at all understood differences of structure between the two sexes in relation to different habits of life are generally confined to the lower animals but with some few birds the beak of the male differs from that of the female in the huia of new zealand the difference is wonderfully great and we hear from dr buller that the male uses his strong beak in chiseling the larvae of insects out of decayed wood whilst the female probes the softer parts with her far longer much curved and pliant beak and thus they mutually aid each other in most cases differences of structure between the sexes are more or less directly connected with the propagation of the species thus a female which has to nourish a multitude of ova requires more food than the male and consequently requires special means for procuring it a male animal which lives for a very short time might lose its organs for procuring food through disuse without detriment but he would retain his locomotive organs in a perfect state so that he might reach the female the female on the other hand might safely lose her organs for flying swimming or walking if she gradually acquired habits which rendered such powers useless we are however here concerned only with sexual selection this depends on the advantage which certain individuals have over others of the same sex and species solely in respect of reproduction when as in the cases above mentioned the two sexes differ in structure in relation to different habits of life they have no doubt been modified through natural selection and by inheritance limited to one and the same sex so again the primary sexual organs and those for nourishing or protecting the young come under the same influence for those individuals which generated or nourished their offspring best would leave ceteris paribus the greatest number to inherit their superiority whilst those which generated or nourished their offspring badly would leave but few to inherit their weaker powers as the male has to find the female 
he requires organs of sense and locomotion, but if these organs are necessary for the other purposes of life, as is generally the case, they will have been developed through natural selection. When the male has found the female, he sometimes absolutely requires prehensile organs to hold her, thus Dr. Wallace informs me that the males of certain moths cannot unite with the females if their tarsi or feet are broken. The males of many oceanic crustaceans, when adult, have their legs and antennae modified in an extraordinary manner for the prehension of the female, Hence, we may suspect that it is because these animals are washed about by the waves of the open sea that they require these organs in order to propagate their kind, and if so, their development has been the result of ordinary or natural selection. Some animals extremely low in the scale have been modified for this same purpose. Thus, the males of certain parasitic worms, when fully grown, have the lower surface of the terminal part of their bodies roughened like a rasp, and with this they coil round and permanently hold the females. M. Perrier advances this case as one fatal to the belief in sexual election, inasmuch as he supposes that I attribute all the differences between the sexes to sexual selection. This distinguished naturalist, therefore, like so many other Frenchmen, has not taken the trouble to understand even the first principles of sexual selection. An English naturalist insists that the claspers of certain male animals could not have been developed through the choice of the female. Had I not met with this remark, I should not have thought it possible for anyone to have read this chapter and to have imagined that I maintain that the choice of the female had anything to do with the development of the prehensile organs in the male. When the two sexes follow exactly the same habits of life, and the male has the sensory or locomotive organs more highly developed than those of the female, it may be that the perfection of these is indispensable to the male for finding the female, but in the vast majority of cases they serve only to give one male an advantage over another, for, with sufficient time, the less well-endowed males would succeed in pairing with the females, and judging from the structure of the female, they would be in all other respects equally well adapted for their ordinary habits of life. Since in such cases the males have acquired their present structure, not from being better fitted to survive in the struggle for existence, but from having gained an advantage over other males, and from having transmitted this advantage to their male offspring alone, sexual selection must here have come into action. It was the importance of this distinction which led me to designate this form of selection as sexual selection. So, again, if the chief service rendered to the male by his prehensile organs is to prevent the escape of the female before the arrival of other males, or when assaulted by them, these organs will have been perfected through sexual selection, that is, by the advantage acquired by certain individuals over their rivals. But in most cases of this kind, it is impossible to distinguish between the effects of natural and sexual selection. Whole chapters could be filled with details on the differences between the sexes in their sensory, locomotive, and prehensile organs. As, however, these structures are not more interesting than others adapted for the ordinary purposes of life, 
I shall pass them over almost entirely, giving only a few instances under each class. There are many other structures and instincts which must have been developed through sexual selection, such as the weapons of offence and the means of defence of the males for fighting with and driving away their rivals, their courage and pugnacity, their various ornaments, their contrivances for producing vocal or instrumental music, and their glands for emitting odours, most of these latter structures serving only to allure or excite the female. It is clear that these characters are the result of sexual and not of ordinary selection, since unarmed, unornamented, or unattractive males would succeed equally well in the battle for life and in leaving a numerous progeny, but for the presence of better endowed males. We may infer that this would be the case because the females, which are unarmed and unornamented, are able to survive and procreate their kind. Secondary sexual characters of the kind just referred to will be fully discussed in the following chapters, as being in many respects interesting, but especially as depending on the will, choice, and rivalry of the individuals of either sex. When we behold two males fighting for the possession of the female, or several male birds displaying their gorgeous plumage, and performing strange antics before an assembled body of females, we cannot doubt that, though led by instinct, they know what they are about, and consciously exert their mental and bodily powers. Just as man can improve the breeds of his gamecocks by the selection of those birds which are victorious in the cockpit, so it appears that the strongest and most vigorous males, or those provided with the best weapons, have prevailed under nature, and have led to the improvement of the natural breed or species. A slight degree of variability leading to some advantage, however slight, in reiterated deadly contests, would suffice for the work of sexual selection, and it is certain that secondary sexual characters are eminently variable. Just as man can give beauty, according to his standard of taste, to his male poultry, or more strictly can modify the beauty originally acquired by the parent species, can give to the seabright bantam a new and elegant plumage, an erect and peculiar carriage, so it appears that female birds in a state of nature have by a long selection of the more attractive males added to their beauty or other attractive qualities. No doubt this implies powers of discrimination and taste on the part of the female, which will at first appear extremely improbable, but by the facts to be adduced hereafter, I hope to be able to show that the females actually have these powers. When, however, it is said that the lower animals have a sense of beauty, it must not be supposed that such sense is comparable with that of a cultivated man, with his multiform and complex associated ideas. A more just comparison would be between the taste for the beautiful in animals and that in the lowest savages, who admire and deck themselves with any brilliant, glittering, or curious object. From our ignorance on several points, the precise manner in which sexual selection acts is somewhat uncertain. Nevertheless, if those naturalists who already believe in the mutability of species 
will read the following chapters, they will, I think, agree with me that sexual selection has played an important part in the history of the organic world. It is certain that amongst almost all animals there is a struggle between the males for the possession of the female. This fact is so notorious that it would be superfluous to give instances. Hence, the females have the opportunity of selecting one out of several males, on the supposition that their mental capacity suffices for the exertion of a choice. In many cases, special circumstances tend to make the struggle between the males particularly severe. Thus, the males of our migratory birds generally arrive at their places of breeding before the females, so that many males are ready to contend for each female. I am informed by Mr. Jenner Wire that the bird catchers assert that this is invariably the case with the nightingale and black cap, and with respect to the latter he can himself confirm the statement. Mr. Swaysland of Brighton has been in the habit, during the last forty years, of catching our migratory birds on their first arrival, and he has never known the females of any species to arrive before their males. During one spring he shot thirty-nine males of Ray's wagtail, Budites Rai, before he saw a single female. Mr. Gould has ascertained by the dissection of those snipes which arrived the first in this country that the males come before the females. And the like holds good with most of the migratory birds of the United States. The majority of the male salmon in our rivers, on coming up from the sea, are ready to breed before the females. So it appears to be with frogs and toads. Throughout the great class of insects, the males almost always are the first to emerge from the pupal state, so that they generally abound for a time before any females can be seen. Even with those plants in which the sexes are separate, the male flowers are generally mature before the female. As first shown by C.K. Sprengel, many hermaphrodite plants are dichogamous, that is, their male and female organs are not ready at the same time, so that they cannot be self-fertilized. Now, in such flowers, the pollen is in general matured before the stigma, though there are exceptional cases in which the female organs are beforehand. The cause of this difference between the males and females in their periods of arrival and maturity is sufficiently obvious. Those males which annually first migrated into any country, or which in the spring were first ready to breed or were the most eager, would leave the largest number of offspring, and these would tend to inherit similar instincts and constitutions. It must be borne in mind that it would have been impossible to change very materially the time of sexual maturity in the females without at the same time interfering with the period of the production of the young, a period which must be determined by the seasons of the year. On the whole, there can be no doubt that with almost all animals in which the sexes are separate, there is a constantly recurrent struggle between the males for the possession of the females. Our difficulty in regard to sexual selection lies in understanding how it is that the males which conquer other males, or those which prove the most attractive to the females, 
leave a greater number of offspring to inherit their superiority than their beaten and less attractive rivals unless this result does follow the characters which give to certain males an advantage over others could not be perfected and augmented through sexual selection when the sexes exist in exactly equal numbers the worst endowed males will except where polygamy prevails ultimately find females and leave as many offspring as well fitted for their general habits of life as the best endowed males from various facts and considerations i formerly inferred that with most animals in which secondary sexual characters are well developed the males considerably exceeded the females in number but this is not by any means always true if the males were to the females as two to one or as three to two or even in a somewhat lower ratio the whole affair would be simple for the better armed or more attractive males would leave the largest number of offspring but after investigating as far as possible the numerical proportion of the sexes i do not believe that any great inequality in number commonly exists in most cases sexual selection appears to have been effective in the following manner let us take any species a bird for example and divide the females inhabiting a district into two equal bodies the one consisting of the more vigorous and better nourished individuals and the other of the less vigorous and healthy the former there can be little doubt would be ready to breed in the spring before the others and this is the opinion of mr jenner wire who has carefully attended to the habits of birds during many years there can also be no doubt that the most vigorous best nourished and earliest breeders would on an average succeed in rearing the largest number of fine offspring here is excellent evidence on the character of the offspring from an experienced ornithologist mr j a allen in speaking of the later broods after the accidental destruction of the first says that these quote, are found to be smaller and paler colored than those hatched earlier in the season in cases where several broods are reared each year as a general rule the birds of the earlier broods seem in all respects the most perfect and vigorous End footnote the males as we have seen are generally ready to breed before the females the strongest and with some species the best armed of the males drive away the weaker and the former would then unite with the more vigorous and better nourished females because they are the first to breed footnote hermann muller has come to the same conclusion with respect to those female bees which are the first to emerge from the pupa each year End footnote. such vigorous pairs would surely rear a larger number of offspring than the retarded females which would be compelled to unite with the conquered and less powerful males supposing the sexes to be numerically equal and this is all that is wanted to add in the course of successive generations to the size strength and courage of the males or to improve their weapons but in very many cases the males which conquer their rivals do not obtain possession of the females independently of the choice of the latter 
the courtship of animals is by no means so simple and short an affair as might be thought the females are most excited by or prefer pairing with the more ornamented males or those which are the best songsters or play the best antics but it is obviously probable that they would at the same time prefer the more vigorous and lively males and this has in some cases been confirmed by actual observation footnote with respect to poultry i have received information hereafter to be given to this effect even birds such as pigeons which pair for life the female as i hear from mr jenner wire will desert her mate if he is injured or grows weak End footnote. thus the more vigorous females which are the first to breed will have the choice of many males and though they may not always select the strongest or best armed they will select those which are vigorous and well armed and in other respects the most attractive both sexes therefore of such early pairs would as above explained have an advantage over others in rearing offspring and this apparently has sufficed during a long course of generations to add not only to the strength and fighting powers of the males but likewise to their various ornaments or other attractions in the converse and much rarer case of the males selecting particular females it is plain that those which were the most vigorous and had conquered others would have the freest choice and it is almost certain that they would select vigorous as well as attractive females such pairs would have an advantage in rearing offspring more especially if the male had the power to defend the female during the pairing season as occurs with some of the higher animals or aided her in providing for the young the same principles would apply if each sex preferred and selected certain individuals of the opposite sex supposing that they selected not only the more attractive but likewise the more vigorous individuals numerical proportion of the two sexes i have remarked that sexual selection would be a simple affair if the males were considerably more numerous than the females hence i was led to investigate as far as i could the proportions between the two sexes of as many animals as possible but the materials are scanty i will here give only a brief abstract of the results retaining the details for a supplementary discussion so as not to interfere with the course of my argument domesticated animals alone afford the means of ascertaining the proportional numbers at birth but no records have been specially kept for this purpose by indirect means however i have collected a considerable body of statistics from which it appears that with most of our domestic animals the sexes are nearly equal at birth thus twenty five thousand five hundred sixty births of race-horses have been recorded during twenty-one years and the male births were to the female births as ninety nine point seven to one hundred in greyhounds the inequality is greater than with any other animal for out of six thousand eight hundred seventy eight births during twelve years the male births were to the female as one hundred ten point one to one hundred 
It is, however, in some degree doubtful whether it is safe to infer that the proportion would be the same under natural conditions as under domestication, for slight and unknown differences in the conditions affect the proportion of the sexes. Thus, with mankind, the male births in England are as 104.5, in Russia as 108.9, and with the Jews of Livonia as 120 to 100 female births. But I shall recur to this curious point of the excess of male births in the supplement to this chapter. At the Cape of Good Hope, however, male children of European extraction have been born during several years in the proportion of between 90 and 99 to 100 female children. For our present purpose, we are concerned with the proportions of the sexes, not only at birth, but also at maturity, and this adds another element of doubt, for it is a well-ascertained fact that with men the number of males dying before or during birth and during the first years of infancy is considerably larger than that of females. So it almost certainly is with male lambs, and probably with some other animals. The males of some species kill one another by fighting, or they drive one another about until they become greatly emaciated. They must also be often exposed to various dangers, whilst wandering about in eager search for the females. In many kinds of fish, the males are much smaller than the females, and they are believed often to be devoured by the latter, or by other fishes. The females of some birds appear to die earlier than the males, they are also liable to be destroyed on their nests, or whilst in charge of their young. With insects, the female larvae are often larger than those of males, and would consequently be more likely to be devoured. In some cases, the mature females are less active and less rapid in their movements than the males, and could not escape so well from danger. Hence, with animals in a state of nature, we must rely on mere estimation in order to judge of the proportions of the sexes at maturity, and this is but little trustworthy, except when the inequality is strongly marked. Nevertheless, as far as a judgment can be formed, we may conclude from the facts given in the supplement that the males of some few mammals, of many birds, of some fish and insects, are considerably more numerous than the females. The proportion between the sexes fluctuates slightly during successive years. Thus, with racehorses, for every 100 mares born, the stallions varied from 107.1 in one year to 92.6 in another year, and with greyhounds, from 116.3 to 95.3. But had larger numbers been tabulated throughout an area more extensive than England, these fluctuations would probably have disappeared, and such as they are, would hardly suffice to lead to effective sexual selection in a state of nature. Nevertheless, in the cases of some few wild animals, as shown in the supplement, the proportions seem to fluctuate either during different seasons or in different localities in a sufficient degree to lead to such selection. For it should be observed that any advantage gained during certain years or in certain localities 
by those males which were able to conquer their rivals or were the most attractive to the females would probably be transmitted to the offspring and would not subsequently be eliminated during the succeeding seasons when from the equality of the sexes every male was able to procure a female the stronger or more attractive males previously produced would still have at least as good a chance of leaving offspring as the weaker or less attractive. End of section 1